Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Expeditions on the Engaging Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Frame. But I want to remind you that if you go and follow our podcast on Anchor FM, uh, the Engaging Faith Podcast, you can hit the subscribe button. You can also help support this podcast and our ability to provide this teaching and ministry to our listeners. Also, there's a way that you can leave a voicemail for us if you want to ask a question or interject a thought or an idea, and you never know. We might use that uh, on our show or give you a call to interview you or talk with you. So, Engaging Faith Podcast on Anchor.fm is where you can find that and be able to do that. I also want to remind you to check out our website at qministryproject.org. You can find out a lot more information about us and also get to our magazine website, urbanwellmag.org. Okay, so with that, we're going to get back into Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5, and this is actually going to be part 2 as we talk about the Hebrew concept of marriage and the betrothal process because uh, it's really, really fascinating. So here we go. So this is where we left off. We're, we, we've taken this side tour. And we're talking about the whole betrothal process, and the reason is because of this scroll, right? We're not going to read Revelation 1 through 5 because we've read it a couple of times. Our focus is on what is this scroll scene? What is this scroll that, that God is holding in his right hand that's described? And, and we know that there's these seven seals. We know that the, the most dominant position about what the scroll is today is it's the title deed, right? So futurism says... This is the title deed for the planet Earth and all that's on it, okay? And, there, and there's some great uh, reasoning behind that, but just like any of these other positions, there's a lot of question marks and a lot of holes, too, in, in that. So what we're doing here is looking at this Hebrew mindset because we have to remember that Jesus was Jewish, right? And the first century church, they were Messianic Jews, okay? And, and we know today there's an entire movement of quote-unquote Messianic Judaism, and we don't have time to go into all of that. Uh, but I do need to say that we're talking about something in one sense a little bit different than Messianic Judaism of the first century, of the first century church, okay? Today, most Messianic Jews, or in Messianic Judaism, uh, today is really made up of about 98%, 95% Gentiles who are trying to learn everything and get back to the Hebrew roots. And these are all wonderful words that we need to know, but they're being co-opted because of the actions of people. And so we've got a lot of Gentiles trying to learn and take on themselves Jewish traditions and, and, and different you know, ways of following the ordinances of, of the Old Testament and, and how to intermix all of that and, and to do it in a way in their mind to reach out to the Jewish people. And so that just brings in a whole lot of other stuff. And then you've got over here, too, you've got the, the Jews for Jesus, which these are real ethnic Jewish people who believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? So a little bit different, and you need to be aware of that. But it doesn't change going back to this Hebrew roots, right? I love that word, and unfortunately it's got really negative connotations because of what I just said a moment ago. But we do need to get back to our Hebrew roots. All that's meaning is, hey, we've lost sight as the church 
okay? And, it, and it's very deliberate. It started in the fourth century, big time. You know, it was very specific creeds. The Jewish people getting saved had to renounce, literally. It was in, in the creeds. And I'll read it to you sometime, exactly what it says. But it just flat tells them, you've got to renounce everything. If you're going to be in the church, if you believe in, in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you have to renounce everything about your culture, about who you are as a Jewish person, about your, your Judaic rituals and ceremonies. All you got to renounce every bit of it. And so starting in the 4th century, that's when that really kicked in in order for them to be accepted into the church. Okay? And then it's just been growing ever since, and we've got this great divide, okay? And so what I want to remind you of is I want you to have in your mind this picture of a tree, right? Because Scripture gives us two olive trees. And you're going to see, by the way, these two olive trees keep coming back into play. There's two olive trees. There's the, there's the cultivated tree, right? And then there's the wild olive tree, right? Who's the cultivated olive tree? Scripture's really clear. It's Israel, Right? It's the Jewish people. They're the cultivated olive tree. Who is the wild olive tree? The Gentiles. The rest of the world. They're the wild olive tree, right? And by the way, God says there's two olive trees. When you go back in the Old Testament, there's two witnesses. I mean, this stuff gets really intriguing. Two witnesses. Two olive trees as witnesses. Man, what could that be? And so here's that key thing. What does Scripture tell us about the, the branches of the wild olive tree? They're grafted into what? The cultivated olive tree. Now get that, right? The whole wild olive tree is not grafted in. The whole wild olive tree doesn't replace anything. The branches of the wild olive tree are grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Are you following me? And I'm, I'm trying to just kind of lay this foundation of why this is important. Man, we should not shy away from Hebrew roots, meaning what it really means, right? We need to capture back this reality in, the, in, in order for us to fully understand who we are as the church. And I'm not talking about that means we've got to follow the law and all that kind of... That's when you get into Messianic Judaism and, you know, 95% of these Gentiles running around trying to be rabbis and Jews, okay? So, so we're grafted in. And what does it say, man? In Romans, Paul talks about this big time, doesn't he? How much more will the natural branches be grafted in? Man, if God grafted in you wild olive branches, how much more? And what bigger blessing, right? I mean, is this going to be for the natural branches to be grafted in? They were cut off for a time. Man, this is the whole theme underlying Romans, right? So what does that give you, man? It gives you this tree, right, that's growing up. And, man, all of a sudden, at some point, it goes like this in church history. And you have part of the tree going this way and part of the tree going this way, and there's a complete separation and divide between them. That guy's started 4th century, got wider through the Middle Ages, right, and the Reformation. And then we're living in a time where what's happening? Man, it's coming together. And that's prophesied. That's prophetic. That is absolutely prophetic, and we're living in that time. We're seeing that. This, is, this hasn't happened in history before, right? And so this tree, these, this cultivated tree, these branches are coming back together into what they are. Jesus, or in the New Testament, we're told something else, that, there are, that, that these two different men, right, these brethren, these brothers, the Israelite believers, 
and the Gentile believers. The New Testament says are being brought together to form what? One new man. That's what, that's what the scripture says. This is another way of saying you've been grafted in. The tree hasn't changed, hence extreme replacement theology that exists today. I'll never forget, you know, I was having a discussion with, with Vernon years ago before he passed away, and, and we were talking, he looked at me and he said, do you believe in replacement theology? I said, absolutely not. Okay, well, what is that? Replacement theology is, man, the church. And this pours into, guys, by the way, these interpretive models of revelation and what's happening in the end. Okay? Dispensational theology, etc. That, that Israel is viewed completely separate, under a completely separate covenant, and the church is under a completely separate covenant, and we don't intermix. And God still has something specific for Israel in the future and a redemption of them that's separate and apart from us. And you need that in order to get to, and I'm not going to tell you this isn't going to happen, okay? I'm not going to tell you that the temple isn't supposed to be rebuilt. I've got a whole lot of questions about it. I've got some major issues with it that just don't make sense to me at my current level of understanding of Scripture. And I'm going to underline that, right? My current, because I don't know everything. As a matter of fact, probably what I know is, is about, you can't even see it between my two fingertips. Okay? So the, the current place that I'm at in my maturity in Christ in the Word, I don't get it. I just have some struggles that I think are pretty serious about. But nonetheless, it could happen. Okay? I mean, that may very well happen. But it's necessary, dispensational theology, futurism says it's absolutely going to happen. They need it to happen. And the only way it can happen is if Israel is under a separate covenant and they're being dealt with completely separate and there's a whole future aspect for them. Okay? Well, man, if we're all the one body, if we're all grafted in, there's some of my, my first struggles with that. But it means we need to understand this and we don't talk about this stuff. But yet the marriage contract, the marriage agreement that we've been talking about is, is this amazing picture. It gives us this amazing picture of who we are in Christ Jesus, who we are in our relationship to God the Father, and why it's so uh, important, and why marriage is so sacred in the eyes of God, uh, and in the Word, and in Christianity. So, uh, as we've been talking about this betrothal process, and we've been talking about these cups of wine, because remember, uh, when, when, when the groom has come with his father, and he enters into the house, they've brought several things with them and, and one of those is the cup of betrothal the other is a, a wine skin full of wine and then obviously the purchase price for the bride and we've talked about the first two uh, cups that are shared in this process the cup of sanctification uh, the second cup is the cup of bargaining and how they correlate with these covenants that that we have so now we're in this marriage contract this bargaining has begun that's what the cup of bargaining is about and when they reach this final agreement on the terms of the marriage contract, what, what the groom is supposed to do, what the, what the bride is supposed to do, when they come to this final agreement of the terms of the marriage contract, the, the ketubah, then they drink that third cup of wine. And this is that, that cup uh, of redemption that we talked about. And it correlates with the sandal covenant uh, but they drink this, this cup of redemption, and it's only uh, consumed by the bride and the groom. 
And when this happens, this marriage contract, the ketubah, is final. And there's something really fascinating that happens after that. And that's that the young men of the family, they would go out into the streets at this point, And they would begin to blow the shofars, blow uh, the trumpets. And, and when they did this, this is announcing to the world, this is announcing to everyone that a marriage contract has been signed, this agreement has come together. And this is incredibly important because these, this isn't just a marriage between a bride and a groom. This is a, this is a coming together, a union of not just only two people, but two families are coming together. And, and if we don't look and, and really uh, study and talk about this, this process, the marriage process in and, and, and the ancient Near East and, and Hebrew culture, then, you know, it, we don't grab a hold of it. We won't see a number of just it, rich, in-depth uh, realities about our relationship and who God is and exactly what it is that he's doing for us. But here's something else. From that point forward, here's what you've got to recognize. And this is amazing, is that if anyone, so once this contract is agreed to in these terms and, and that, that cup of redemption is, is, is taken, uh, from that point forward, if anyone of, of the two, whether the groom or the bride, if anyone died, either of them died, then the other, the surviving one, would fully inherit the deceased partner's possessions. Did you grab a hold of that? They would fully inherit the deceased partner's possessions. Now, that, that just ought to make your mind explode and, and should really begin to just make you think about these sacred parallels that exist. And in case you're wondering, I mean, this actually, this concept of the marriage contract and the betrothal process uh, explains some other passages that we see. So, for example... Uh, you, you see this dynamic played out in Genesis chapter 19, uh, verse 14. So this is where, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed. And Lot comes uh, to, the, to the young men who are going to marry his daughters and tells them basically, we've got to get out of here. We've got to go. And, they, and, and this is where they're looking at him crazy. But, but here's the thing, when you read that, it literally says... It calls these young men, and it tells you in Scripture that they're his sons-in-law. And then it tells you the ones who are going to be married to his daughter. So they're not married yet, uh, the way that we think of it, but yet they're his sons-in-law. So this idea that the marriage, you know, from the time the doors uh, that that the the groom and his father knock on the door, and you let them in, and this whole process begins in the betrothal, that that you are considered man and wife married. Is, is absolutely there. So as we talk about that third cup, that, that cup of redemption, then you also have to realize in this concept of sacred parallels that, man, the Last Supper with Jesus, you know, that this third cup corresponds to the cup of wine, the wine that Jesus passed around uh, to his disciples at the Last Supper. And, and not only that, but it's the Sandal Covenant. And what did he do? I mean, you know, what did, what did he do with his disciples uh, at the Last Supper? So let's take a look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And let's talk about that a little bit. Are you ready? Ready. All right, fire away. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, hang, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Jesus said to him, uh, sorry, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, Did I read too much? No, you know what? Actually, <laughs> keep going. I've decided, yeah, Carry I want you to keep going. <laughs> Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. All right, that's great. <laughs> I should have just told you to go through nine. Did you guys catch that stuff? Now, we haven't read the whole scene. Where are we at? The Last Supper. We're at the Last Supper, right? Man, this is the Passover. Jesus has told them, you're going to, I mean, it's even a miraculous thing, right? I mean, Jesus didn't go ahead of them and go make a deal with a guy and say, okay, I'm going to send these dudes over to you and just act like, you know. He didn't do any of that, right? He told them, hey, go in, and when you get, you're going to see a guy, right, carrying, I can't remember now, is it water or wine? I think it was, it was water, a jug. Yeah, You're going to see him carrying a jug, follow him, right? And he's and just follow him, and you're going to go, and he's going to take you to his, his place, and there's an upper room there. That's where we're going to have our Passover supper. Man, what's happening? <laughs> okay. Jesus followed, man, what, what you see, because I guarantee you, most of us think about the Last Supper as what? I mean, come on, be real. Boom. That's how we see it, don't we? And then we hear about, oh, well, we don't even think necessarily about the Passover. And why is it? Because most people don't even know, most people in the Western church, in our churches today, and, and again, this is why the Hebrew roots, right? Mm -hmm. This is important. We don't even correlate. We don't at all grab a hold of the significance and the sequence of events that's taking place and the pronouncement that's... And when you do, when you actually go through the feasts and what they... All this stuff overlays and it all repeats. And you can't help but go, wow. I mean, goosebumps. And, and your hair begins to stand on end because you begin to just recognize the power and the import of what's happening. And what God is saying, and because we choose to ignore these things, they go all the way back to our history. That's why I tell you, four centuries where it really started. You've got to know your church history. If we're going to open our eyes, we're going to quit being blind, and we're going to understand what God wants us to know, we need to be willing to drop our filters. And we don't. Right? And I wasn't pointing at you, Ginger. No. <laughs> Ginger's digging deep. I know she is. So, I, have a, I have a question. Yeah. So you're saying in the fourth century, basically, is when we as Hebrews begin to dump off all the Jewish traditions, and and like like I have Jewish friends now, and they celebrate uh, the Passover. They celebrate different things, totally different dates, and what I never even think about it until I see it coming up on the Jewish calendar that I have in my phone. But uh, so 
what you're saying is we basically should probably or we are getting back to wanting to celebrate those as Hebrew? Well, what I'm saying is that the church, starting in the 4th century, right. the church deliberately, the, the, the Gentiles, right? We deliberately said, if you're a Jewish believer who's accepted Christ as the Messiah, you got to get rid of all of that, everything about your culture to be accepted into the church. That's what we started to say. Now, as a natural outcropping of that process, yes, I do personally believe that we caused some of the atheism I'm just going to, I can't tell you, I'm not telling you this is factual, this is just my personal opinion, but the supermajority, like 90-something odd percent of the Jewish people are atheists, and at best they're agnostic, and, and they don't, many of them beyond just a cursory celebration, because just like, just like we might celebrate president, well, no, it's more than that, you know, the way that we celebrate Christmas, maybe, Right is the better example, is how many of the Jewish people today who do practice and follow the, these cultural traditions, that's kind of how they look at it. It's just a thing that we do, and it, it's important to our culture, so culturally it's significant, but spiritually it is not. And I do think we have a, a Well, if we plan. were celebrating, we were doing those kind of things, I think you'd bring in more uh, Jews to where they would begin to look into... Right. Christian faith. So that is exactly the mindset of the Messianic Jewish movement today that's made up of 95% Gentiles, is that if we will adopt, and there's lots of layers there, okay, but if we'll adopt and begin to practice some of these things, even they're calling themselves rabbis instead of pastors, I mean literally, okay, then we can appeal to them and go, hey, these folks aren't so bad, we'll listen to who Jesus is. The problem is it's having the absolute opposite effect. It's, it's actually pushing the Jewish people further back, going, who do you think you are? You can't do that. You know? I mean, it, it, because it's, 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 it's sacrilegious. Huh? It's because the Jewish people are tied to, back to the you know, Yeah, And it's a lot of, you're right, it's a lot of different things. And so, yeah, you're on the right track, for sure, okay? But the problem is we're at this really pivotal time. It's happening. It's going to happen. Okay? But we're rejecting. We're going to wait. And people like me who are recognizing that and trying to understand it more, and I know Heath's in this camp too, is we're not saying, no, you're not supposed to follow the law. I mean, that stuff's really clear. But can you know the festivals and their meanings and even celebrate the festivals? Absolutely you can. And there's nothing wrong with a Jewish believer doing that either. Okay? If a Jewish believer, I'm going to tell you, if they want to follow the dietary customs of Leviticus and all of that, they absolutely can because it's no different than, I mean, you're a vegan, right? Right? It's absolutely no different than Danette's choices for her eating habits, etc. Where, where you cross a line is when you think all of that is required in order to be saved. And then all of that stuff is required in order to be in relationship with God. And that's the other problem with the Messianic Jewish movement. And what they're labeling as the Hebrew Roots movement today is many of them go from thinking, hey, this is all good, to they start getting into saying, we have to do this. And then they start making these, going to Romans, looking at, because guys, you can't deny, you can't argue at all that Paul... 
Paul didn't follow. Yes, Paul did. Paul admitted that he did. Not only that, but Peter and James and all of them did too. That's why James, you know, when Paul went to, went to the Jerusalem council and said, hey, we got these Judaizers telling these Gentiles they got to do this, this, and this, be circumcised if they're really saved, what did James end up with? What did he tell them? He said, no. None of this. Why would we put on them a burden we can't carry ourselves? And then he tells them, hey, just don't eat anything. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Right. It's been straight. Right. Gives them. And, and man, stay away. Some sexual Boom. And you'll be good. Okay. Did he turn around and tell the Jewish believers that? <laughs> no. Okay. But they made it clear, you following, you choosing to maintain the festivals and the Passover and all of those things doesn't save you. And if you think it does, then you're putting up a false Christ. Okay? Again, another whole... Worshipping with other eyes. You're worshipping another other eyes. Okay? Another deep study, etc. But the reality is the church guys, we're coming here and you ain't stopping it. And you know why? Because we were never separate. We were a new man. Period. Okay? And we have forgotten. And so because we have forgotten, we're missing some really important things. Layers to this onion that help us know who we are in Christ and who he is. And the significance of what he did on the cross for us. Okay? And so here, you actually see, when you go through the whole process, of the Last Supper, Jesus, what did he say, Shannon? When Peter said, oh, hey, no, man, you, no, you can't wash my feet. What? <laughs> well, you were right on. You have no part in that. Yeah, that's right. If I don't do this for you, man, he's taking it off. He's getting down, and he's saying, if I don't do this for you, you have no part with me. And this is the inheritance covenant. This is, the, this is him taking their sandal off, right? And washing their feet because he told them, hey, your whole body's clean, but your feet aren't. Where are we at? <laughs> Man, and he starts with the inheritance. He flips it. And he says, he removes their sandals and he washes their feet and tells them, you can't have any part with me unless I do this for you. And what did you, Jesus said? He came to serve. serve. Jesus starts with the inheritance covenant. Then he breaks bread. Okay? So the whole cup of bargaining, this is when the meal process begins. They break bread at that time. It's, it's the friendship covenant slash some will, will show hospitality. We're hospitable to our friends. We call them into our home, and we share a meal with them. And we're saying, you're our friend, and we're hospitable to them. So he breaks bread, and you have the friendship co covenant. Then what does he do? Man, he's passing the cup of wine. Servant, and also it says blood covenant. This is, this is a symbol of my blood, right? This is my blood. But then he does the ultimate thing. He gets up from that meal, right? And he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. And he is 
is just in intense turmoil. Even to the point he says, God, man, if there is another way, take this cup from me. But nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And at this meal, he said something. He said to Judas Iscariot, of course, he didn't say it directly to him, right? But he says, somebody here, one of you is going to, what? Betray me. And what does Judas Iscariot have in his hand? What's he carrying on his person? The bag of money. Remember? Who comes to the door knocking, and what was another item that they brought with them? They've got the cup of betrothal. They've got a bottle or jug or wineskin of wine. And they've got a pouch full of money. And the pouch full of money is the price to purchase the bride, to give to the Father. And he tells Judas at some point in there, okay, it's time, go ahead. And what does Judas, who's full of Satan, what does he get up and do? He leaves, right? What's he take with him? The money. Takes the money. And he betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Okay? Man, all of this is being played out here. He goes to the garden. Judas comes with the centurion guards and the blah, blah, blahs. And, you know, and, and was it Peter, right? Says, Shane, no! And there goes his ear, and Jesus heals, heals his ear. We, we know this, right? But then he goes and he pays the ultimate price. He sheds his blood on the cross, the ultimate blood covenant. Now, we're not going to get there today, but we will next week. This has a whole nother level of significance, and it deals with Mary. Okay, but we'll, we'll hold that one. So, ketubah, what in the world is this ketubah, this contract? God on the throne is holding something that's written on all sides and is sealed with seven seals. Well, the ketubah, this is the marriage contract. Okay? This isn't just a process. This is a document. When you look at these things, they're ornate. I mean, these, these are our ornate documents. This isn't just some simple certificate. This is an ornate document. It's got five specific parts. Okay, So the first part, and, and this document, this is what, when you're here, you've negotiated all the terms, and they call in a scribe. Okay, And the scribe comes in with this official document, and he writes down everything that was determined, etc., okay? And that scribe has to do it. Well, these five parts, part number one, it's a combined family history of the bride and the groom, and any anecdotal information, you know, little bits and pieces, etc., and it's got their family trees. Part number two, it's a personal section, same kind of information, but purely for the bride. Is anything happening in your brain here? Purely for the bride, and, and with little anecdotal pieces of information there. Part number three, same thing, but now it's for the groom side only. Family tree, anecdotal history information, all that in section number three. Part number four is now the story of how they met. Don't we love to ask, man, how did you, how did you guys meet? We ask that to this day, right? So that's the story of how they met. Then the fifth section is the details that were started to be hammered out right there. So what are the terms? What does the bride have to go do? What does the groom have to go do? 
purity, all these kinds of things. The groom has to go do some things before he can actually come back. Does that sound familiar? We're going to talk about that next week. That's all here. Now, here's the deal. These five segments exist in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, right? These five parts of the Ketubah go, this first section, Genesis. The second section, Exodus. Third section is Leviticus. Fourth section is Numbers. Fifth section is Deuteronomy. The New Covenant, first, second, third, fourth. All of that is played out. We've got three years of Jesus' ministry or, or more, three and a half maybe, right? That are laid out before he goes and pays the ultimate price. But he well, I'm not going to go there yet. We'll deal with that next, next week, okay? So you see a marriage contract. The first five books of the Bible are a marriage contract. Absolutely. And the temple. Man, this is all here, right? So here's, a, here's the other kicker. When the ketubah is finished and it's signed, it has to have seven witnesses or seven seals. Okay? It has to have these seven signatures, the bride, the groom, both fathers, right? the scribe, and two witnesses have to sign on the ketubah. Okay? Well, who are the seven signatories on the, old, on, on the Torah? You've got Abraham and Noah are the two witnesses. You've got, or pardon me, Adam and Noah are the two witnesses. Abraham... It says, from his seed, and it goes on later to say, the seed, it's singular, meaning Jesus is the father of the groom, right? But it's also God, because God's the one who went to Abraham, made him a people that wasn't a people, and God shows up elsewhere signing the ketubah. Where'd he do it? Mount Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandments. What, the Ten Commandments and all of that, Moses, or Jacob, is the father of the bride. Okay? Israel. Moses is the scribe. Moses is the one who did what? He wrote the Ten Commandments. And when did Moses write it? After he smashed the first ones that God wrote himself. Hence. Okay? So Moses is the scribe. The bride is David. David represents the bride. And Jesus is the groom. You get to the New Testament, Jesus flat out says, I'm the one who led Israel through the wilderness. He flat out tells us that. Remember our class on supernatural? Here's your seven witnesses, your seven signatories. You know, I have to say, this is really interesting because this week in BSF, we're, we're talking about David and after he's become king, and now he's going back to, and he's finding Jonathan's son. And of course, you know, this is at the time, you know, Jonathan is Saul's son. Yeah. And he's going back and he's giving him the, the land that Saul had. So it makes me think of all this because you've got the inheritance. You've got him. all of it. He's inviting him to the table to eat with him, bringing him in. And it's so much like this. So it's almost like a foreshadowing. Absolutely. Of everything that's to come. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing that we were just talking about it this week. Amen. And even going back to It budded out. It budded and it's in the yep. That's right. All these little pieces. So all this stuff comes flooding in, right? Mm -hmm. This imagery that's there. 
So what's cup number four? It's called the cup of praise. And that cup, they don't, only the bride and groom drink that cup, and it only happens during the wedding ceremony itself. And what are we going to find in Revelation? <laughs> the great feast, right? All right, Lord, we just thank you, Father God, for who you are. I just pray that you minister to our hearts, that you strengthen our spirit, that we just see the importance of these things and that you speak to us where we are. Help us to know. Help us to just clearly discern what your spirit wants us to know. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can come together in times like this and, and minister to one another. And Lord, I thank you for each person who's here. I pray that you bless them and that you move mightily in their lives and move in this service. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah.